I got crumbs on my um. That's why there's ants in here. No, they're not over here. They don't want my crumbs. They don't want. They don't even want my my Reese's wrappers in the trash can. They just want to be on the wall behind the computer. <laughs> Welcome to Chronically Narnia, the podcast in which my co-host and I discuss the Chronicles of Narnia chapter by chapter, and today we are discussing chapter 14 of The Silver Chair. This chapter is called The Bottom of the World. Wow. I am Golg of the really deep land, also known as Bism. Where we eat live rubies and juice diamonds for your consumption. Also known as Kristen. And this is my co-host. First, I have to know if you're going to let out a squib. (laughs) Let off a squib. Let off a squib. I don't plan to, no. Okay. That would be exciting. That would be exciting. Uh, Anyway, I'm Snowflake. Hey, Snowflake. Hey. You're just making a reprisal of your... You didn't be a horse last no, time. No, I okay. was not. I'm, uh... You're just still here. You know, I'm I'm one of those millennial snowflakes that uh, <laughs> those older folks complain about all the time. Also known as? Also known as Chris. Hello, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank, thank you, you for joining me today. You're welcome. So, um, the bottom of the world, huh? Yeah, are you are you a, a like a bottom of the world or a top of the world kind of gal? You mean a a bottom of the world or uh, an outside of the world kind of person? Yeah, I'm an outside of the world kind of person sometimes. Okay, but like not as much as I am like a bottom of the world kind of person. Okay, I don't know. You know, I'm a bottom of the world man. It's um, not. But, it's not the like underside of the world though, like because they they talk about it as if it's like the inside of the world because correct. they talk about the outs like the surface as if it's the outside. Which means my baseless speculation last week was wrong, possibly uh, about them going to the uh, to the flip side, which I was happy about. I wanted to be wrong because this continues to support my uh, theory that Narnia is not actually a flat disc. Okay. Because, like, we can go real deep in there. I'm glad. And and we still haven't gotten to... <laughs> so what's the first thing we do in this, uh... Well, first, first we banter. Done. Check. Uh-huh. Next. It's been a heck of a week, Kristen. Sorry. I'm, yeah. You know... It really has. Uh-huh. Some stuff. Yeah. I went into work yesterday, and one of my coworkers was like, oh, I'm not feeling good today. I overdid it last night, and I stayed out too late. And I was like, yeah... Some stuff happened with me, and then a little while later, one of my other co-workers came in and was like, yeah, I broke up with my girlfriend over the phone on my way to work today, and then my next co-worker who came in was like, yeah, I couldn't sleep last night, and so it was like, basically, like, we had seven people working at peak, and five of us had had awful days or previous days. It's a bad shift. Where we were all just like, yep, we're just here. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the first thing we do is we summarize the chapter with five sentences that we take out and use that as a starting point to talk about it. Yep. 
That's uh, that's what we do. No content. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, man. All right. Well, would you like to do your summary first? Sure. I'll go ahead and do mine first. All right. Mine is as follows. You see, we're all poor gnomes from Bism, whom the witch has called up here by magic to work for her. As he went, he kept shouting out the good news that the witch was dead and that the four overlanders were not dangerous. And I know not how... As the years pass, I shall bear to remember that it was once in my power to have probed the uttermost pit of the earth, and that I forbore. If your highness wants to see your father while he's still alive, which I think he'd prefer, said Puddleglum, it's about time we were getting onto that road to the diggings. Then began the slow, weary march uphill, with nothing ahead to look at, and the pale lamps which went up and up as far as the eye could reach. There you have it. There you go. You found a sentence in there that I didn't want to take the time to find. Your second <laughs> sentence was one that I was like, I should find that sentence, and I just didn't want to look for it when I came to writing my summary. It was there. I know it was there, <laughs> and I was looking. Like, I thought, mm, I should find that sentence, and then I was like, never mind. These sentences that I found easily worked better. Okay. Or just as well. Go ahead. All right. Here is my summary. Uh-huh. You see, we're all poor gnomes from Bism, whom the witch has called up here by magic to work for her. But we'd forgotten all about it till that crash came and the spell broke. They flung themselves headlong, and either because so strong a blast of hot air was beating up from the bottom, or for some other reason, they could be seen floating downward like leaves. They began the slow, weary march uphill, with nothing ahead to look at but the pale lamps, which went up and up as far as the eye could reach. I say, came Eustace's voice much later, are my eyes going wrong, or is there a patch of light up there? There we go. There you go. Are his eyes going wrong? Probably. (sighs) So, this chapter, uh, we get to learn more about other parts of the land of Narnia that uh, we haven't necessarily seen before. Yeah. This is honestly one of my favorite bits of world building here is Bism. I I am enchanted by the idea of Bism in the same way that I'm enchanted by, like, the land of Moria. Uh-huh. In the same way that Rillian is. He really wants to go there. Jill yeah. really doesn't. Jill really doesn't. Now, do you think that there's something about Jill inherently that is stopping her from wanting to engage in the adventure because like eustace got like turned into a dragon and that's part of his adventure story and overcoming like who he was or like the monster in himself or whatever yeah jill hasn't had an arc like that and is that why she's not like ready to just dive into this adventure thing or is there something else about Jill that, like, has she had an arc and a change because she and Eustace had their little apology moment? And she just, is she a voice of reason here or something to keep them out? Like, why isn't Jill interested in going to Bism? I mean, they have to have a reason to not go. Like, we only got three chapters left in the book, so they yeah, can't, like... Yeah, they, but they come up with a reason to not go on their own about, like, <laughs> like it's Puddleglum who says you want to see your dad, don't you? Like, it's not it's not Jill who says that. No, Puddleglum doesn't want to go either. I, I think he's making excuses. Um, 
But why doesn't Jill want to go? Like, Narnia has this effect of inspiring a wonder and adventure uh-huh. in all of the Earth children that have come here so far, except for Jill and possibly... I would say Susan. Susan doesn't really ever seem like she uh, is really into it. Except that she's into being a queen. <laughs> uh-huh. But no, the other person I'm thinking of is from the magician's nephew. Polly. Polly. Yeah. Possibly Polly. Yeah. No um, young girls just don't want to adventure. Um, with- but like, Polly has her whole little adventure through the roof and the, the attics and stuff like that. She's got her her stories that she doesn't share and stuff like that. So I feel like she has an adventuresome streak that's already existing. I feel like Jill doesn't. And I feel like Jill, like, I feel like for Susan, it's a matter of wanting to be more, like, feeling like she needs to be more maternal and protecting of her siblings because they don't have a mother figure at the moment in that, in her stories. But then when we come here to Jill, it's like, why is Jill, like, the the only human child who has, like, hasn't responded to the call of adventure in Narnia? Like, she's obviously read all the wrong books, too, but she hasn't had the same impact, at, like, as Eustace, as Narnia had on Eustace. It hasn't had that effect on Jill. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, th- I think it could be as simple as, like, Jill doesn't really like being underground. and uh, She doesn't want to go deeper underground uh, because she's expressed this before well she's expressed claustrophobia yeah yeah and doesn't want to go deeper into the earth uh so it could be that i mean also the flavor of their journeys have been very different like eustace came in uh to the world on a journey of exploration it's just hey we're gonna go sail out to the ends of the world and see what we see uh which he was able to come around to this was a i mean a much more arduous journey with a purpose where like and that she feels like she's already screwed up most of. Yeah. It's like they had all these signs that they that they messed up. Like they definitely took the long way around. Um, and it's been a long, hard journey without like a lot of the whimsy or like fun things that uh, the crew of the Dawn Treader was able to experience and find. Oh yeah, whimsy and fun <laughs> things like Deathwater Island. Or like the Duffelpuds. Or you Merfolk. Mean- or, or like, the Dark Island. Yeah, that one was uh, kind of terrifying. But I, I don't know. Hey, something about being on a boat's better than uh, trekking it's through just the as underside of the earth. <laughs> more so. Anyway. <sighs> I just want to know why Jill hasn't had the same drive to adventure. Like, is that just a personal difference? Or is there something about her character? Like, is there something specifically about her or this adventure that, like... Is causing her to respond differently than, than the, the other Earth children have responded to being in Narnia so far. Yeah. Well, I think, um, I don't know, I, I have something that I personally think is brilliant to get into with that and my baseless speculation that Jill ties into. Okay. Um, so I don't want to spoil that already. Um, it's also complete nonsense and not in any way Lewis is intending, so I don't want to okay. <laughs> say that. Um I don't know. I so, mean, could this be a character difference? Like, yeah, not everybody has to be into adventure. Easy, which as that. might be part of what <laughs> makes Jill one of the most unique characters, <laughs> possibly. Anyway, so we get introduced to this land abysm, and 
I really, I agree with you. I really like the world building here and uh, how it's established. We have to bring up the fact that, you know, Lewis, again, violates one of the cornerstones of storytelling in show, not tell. It is a really, really bad job here. Yeah, because they smell the land of Bism, they see this river of fire, they see these kind of brilliant glowing stained glass colored things uh-huh. from a fathom away. Yeah, a thousand fathoms, in fact. And all we get about Bism beyond that is description from Golg. Uh-huh. Which... It doesn't give an exact figure here. Like, uh, yes, uh, the description thing we'll, we'll get into. I did want to point out uh, we don't get an exact figure for how down deep the really deep land is. But Gold does say a thousand fathoms under us. Yeah. Which a thousand fathoms is about 6,000 feet. Okay. So it's a little over a mile down. Okay. Um, which I guess is pretty far. It is very far down. Yeah. But, like, that's, that's like, the height of those mountains that we can see out our window. So, I mean, basically from the top of one of those to ground level is, is what we're talking. So. Yeah. I, I don't think it's worth the hyperbole that Gold goes into about, oh, hey, those mines you have in the surface that are just tiny scratches that barely go anywhere... Like, when when their really deep land is, like, a mile lower than they currently are. It's not like we're going down to the core of the earth here. We're just, like, I don't know. Um, I, it's a deep yes, hole, though. Y- you say it's not like going down to the core of the earth, but, like, a mile deep is incredibly deep. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty, I'm not saying it's not far. Okay. Cool. But, anyway... Uh, so this, they finally get to the chasm, they look into it, they see all this bright stuff, Gold tells them about this fascinating land of Bism that they're all from, uh, and that the witch had called them up from there and enchanted them and made them work. Yes. And everything that they're seeing in the city now is just them celebrating being free. Yes. Because they're just like... Which, and, and they ask, like, we saw people moving like they were in military formation, and they're like, yeah, we were ready to go fight the witch. Like, uh-huh. we, we didn't know that she was dead. We just thought somehow the spell broke. Yeah. So. Um, which. And we thought that you were sent out from the castle to resubjugate us. Yeah. Which I want to do a, a little bit of not baseless speculation here. So, we don't know how long this has been going on. It's been... More years. than 10 years yeah, that Rillian's been down here. Yeah, so it's been years and years that uh, these gnomes have been under the witch's spell. She called them up. How she knew about them in the first place, anybody's guess. They don't seem like the type of folk that like to be up near the surface. So yeah. don't know how she found out about the gnomes. But she calls them up from the deep to create this whole thing and create this city and start tunneling and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I guess part of my question is, What's the point of this city? Like, yeah, sure, the gnomes have a place to live. Cool. Um, But, like, it's a lot of effort and years and years of labor and work. And this is a thing that had to have started even before she had kidnapped Rillian. 
And so, I don't know if this is a plan that she's had for ages and yeah, ages. Yeah, I mean, she's clearly had a plan for ages and ages to take over Narnia, but we're, we're still assuming that it's Narnia. Yeah. That she was planning to attack. Yeah. And I don't think that that's a bad assumption to make. Yeah. And so, and we've established that she's a, she's a long liver and that she's patient in her, in her way about going about this. Yeah. So, she's probably been planning for years and years and years. Yeah. To dig under Narnia and come up with an army and surprise them. And she called up this army from the deep, from from Bism, yeah. of gnomes, and have them digging because that's something that they are skilled at, to dig all of these tunnels under Narnia and attack Narnia. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think we, we kind of mentioned this a little bit before in a, a couple chapters ago, but I, I think this almost... Just like the the extent of this plan almost supports the idea that this might be attempt number two from the Green Witch at taking Narnia, because we yeah. have established that she had at least some sort of relations with the giants of the North. Yeah, which and I... like maybe a thousand years ago, she was the one that was prodding them to go and attack Narnia because that was her plan back then, and it failed. Because King Peter defeated the giants. Yeah, and then she was just like, all right, well, failed that. Got to go underground and be snaky about this. Yeah. Which I I wouldn't be surprised if that's all stuff. I mean, I don't know if Lewis is going to actually come out and say all of that. Yeah. Um, but then, then again, also, like, what's, what's the motivation, I guess? Is that other than just spreading... Uh, you know, spreading her proverbial wings, or, you know, whatever snakes have instead of wings. <laughs> what even are snakes? Um, <laughs> instead of, like, other than doing that, what's her motivation for taking Narnia? Because, like, she has this whole army of people. She has her own city. She has a power base. She's got allies up here with the giant. She has a great deal of influence and basically whatever she could want. Yeah. What does she need in Narnia that she needs to come up with this incredibly elaborate plan to invade it? That's an excellent question. Like, does she just want more subjects? Like, what is special about Narnia itself that she's just like, must have this place? This is the question that I want an answer to very badly. Uh-huh. Yes. Like, that's... <laughs> so, I don't know. Is it just like an affront to Aslan? It's like, hey, Aslan, screw you. I'm going to take what you have in like this very satanic metaphor. Don't know. Um... Yeah. Don't I mean, know. she's very much like a literal serpent. Uh-huh. So she's very much falling within that Lucifer frame. Yeah, I I feel like Jadis probably had at least more understandable motivations, but Yeah. The uh the Lady of the Green Colonel, no idea. Exactly. True. Um, anywho. So moving on. Uh, they, let's talk about Bism a little bit. Yes, I love Bism Bism. so much. I really, really love the descriptions of Bism a lot. Uh Uh-huh. It is one of my favorites. Uh, so it's this great land underground. Apparently it smells interesting and spicy. (laughs) Yeah. It's a... It's, it, it's an interesting description because you see, like, fire and you immediately think, oh, is it going to be, like sulfur and like death and like but it the smell is said it was rich sharp 
exciting and made you sneeze. Uh-huh. So my, my first thought when I read that was like something like cinnamon or like a blend of exotic spices or something. Yeah. Like, but what what is an exciting <laughs> smell? Like, how does that? How would you describe this smell? Exciting. Uh, just walk into a Bath and Body Works and be like, I'm looking for something that smells exciting. Yeah. Like, I want to smell like adventure. <laughs> Here's some sandalwood, <laughs> tobacco smell. I don't know. Like, no, that's that's a men's cologne department. Oh. <laughs> Um, cause you know, we, we need to smell like wood and leather. Yeah. Anyway. That's what I've heard. So it's a, it's a rich and deep smell. And then they see this brilliant light and this river of fire that's going through. They see these fields of like multicolored whatevers that look like, um, like tropical sun going through a stained glass window. Yes. Um, which is a surprisingly good description for Lewis. Uh, Harsh. Sorry, I'm 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 too hard on him sometimes. You are. Uh and we talk a little bit about like how this world work and how there's salamanders, which are probably young dragons. The gnomes don't really know. Yeah. <laughs> don't like, really there's these critters called salamanders that live in the fire river and talk to them, but like the gnomes don't actually know what they are. Yeah. It's mysterious. It is. It's very mysterious. Uh but they're very eloquent. And they are trying to convince Rillian to come down. And they're just like, hey, come down. Really cool down here. Uh, haha, it's not actually cool. Um, but they talk about, like, Jill says something about, like, the, the minds that they have with, with, because, because Golg describes rubies and diamonds and things like that. And, you know, Jill's like, we have those on the surface, too. And he goes, you have dead gold. Uh-huh. Dead silver and dead gems. Yeah. Which is one of my favorite things. It's just like he says, we have live ones. Uh-huh. And just uh, whatever it is about that particular imagery uh-huh. paints such an image for me that just, I love Bism. <laughs> like that is just such a like profoundly inspiring image for me. Yeah. That the gold that we have up here on the surface is dead. Mm-hmm. The silver, the gems. We live in Bism down where those grow. Yeah. And it's not growing like crystals growing. It's growing like fruit. We can pick you some gems to eat. And squeeze some diamond juice. Yes. And have some rubies for you to eat. Like Sounds expensive. Sounds so cool. Um, Sounds so like a live ruby. I want to eat one. <laughs> what would a live ruby taste like, Kristen? I don't know. <laughs> but then my other question is: Is diamond juice what Lucy had in her cordial of healing, which was made out of diamond? That might be a stretch. I don't know. I yeah, like a... it. I like it. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, other than that, though, we don't we don't get a lot of information about what bism is like like we don't know what like actual gnome society is structured like we also still don't know why they all look different we don't uh unless like gnomes are a very imperialist society and like they're all different species that live under the same banner um which is possible it's very very possible um but i don't know i want to know more about the really deep land of bism but we we never get to go there and we never get to find out 
True. Um, because the only way there closes up. Yes. And so a voice calls out from the deep, which they believe may be a salamander's. Uh Uh-huh. And says, hurry, hurry, like, run, run, like, get down here now, like. Uh-huh. And so Golg takes his leave, points them in the direction of the road they need to go to, uh-huh. and jumps in, and very few were left to follow Golg. Yeah. Because everyone else had gone down, and it says, then with, at, like, and then you have, like, four or five sentences in a row of, like, the the chasm slowly closing. Yeah. Describing it as like a stream and then a thread and then... With a great sound. Then with a shock like a thousand goods trains crashing into a thousand pairs of buffers, the lips of rock closed. I know exactly what that sounds like. You know what a thousand... (laughs) Totally. Like... (laughs) The idea of a train crashing into buffers, like it would... A train crashing into buffers. Is that a common sound that children would have heard in the 1950s? Well, he uses a lot of train imagery. Like, yes. he compares a lot of things to trains. Yes. But, so. like, is the sound of a train crashing <laughs> a common sound for children to know of? Uh-huh. Maybe trains were much more unreliable back then. <laughs> just, I just... Why are you so interested in talking about trains if all you can talk about them is that they crash? <laughs> Um, anyway, so they go down into the hole, they float down, hole closes up, and then they are off to walk the lonely road out. Hey, look, uh, there's an example of you using the word they with no, that, that, that's called a hanging pronoun or something, dangling modifier. But You said they, they all go down into the hole, then the hole closes, and they go off on the lonely journey uphill. Oh, okay. And they, as in not the gnomes, <laughs> the non-gnome crew, uh head out onto this low road uh in an effort to outstrip the flood that is chasing them all the way up yes uh so they're uh following the road they come down to a point where in five more minutes they wouldn't have been able to cross yep uh and they're they're on their horses they're racing out uh the horses need to stop for a rest at some point and they drink from the water uh they wade through it a bit but eventually they uh they get up to higher ground. They, uh... Puddleglum even says that he doesn't think the water's rising as fast as they think, which was a very scary statement for me <laughs> to hear from Puddleglum. Uh-huh. Who knows what that means. <sighs> what he's trying to ward off there. Yeah. Um, we don't think the water's reached Father Time yet, which I guess is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want Father Time to wake up or drown or something. Yeah. What happens if Father Time dies? Oof. Man. Who even knows? Uh, but him and the animals seem to be much higher up toward the surface than they were. So they're probably safe. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Because Jill, Jill makes the statement like, oh, I'm worried about Father Time, you know? Yeah. And the animals. But see, where is this water getting displaced from? Yeah, that's, because, that's a question. Because water just doesn't magically rise without coming from somewhere else. So, like... I don't know. Did some giant chunk of rock fall into the sea and it's possible. throw the water level up? Or Father Time might have just woken up and rolled over into the sea. <laughs> is now he the, he's displacing the water in this flood. Is he that big? I don't know. I feel like he was described <laughs> as pretty massive human-shaped. Yeah. Giant. 
He's just going for a dip. <laughs> Father Time's taking his once every millennium bath and uh, displacing yeah. this water. Yep. <laughs> and that's what they have to worry about. Um. Anyway, so now the roof of the Underland is getting so near that even by the dull light they can see it quite distinctly. And they go up this low slope where it's getting narrower and narrower and the roof is getting lower and lower and Jill feels claustrophobic again. And then it gets darker and darker. They uh-huh. have they have a couple of conversations where they're trying to decide whether or not the lights are actually getting darker. Yeah, like our, I I feel like we didn't establish this very clearly, but all their like all these lanterns are they also something the witch did? Like are they the witch's enchantment, and that's why they're going out now that she's dead? I don't know. I mean, they may also be lanterns that had to be maintained by the people by the gnomes. Yeah. And that without gnomes present to, like, refill them and and fuel them and charge them, that they don't have a long life. Yeah. Possibly. Uh, But then the lanterns start going out, and it starts getting darker and darker. Everything starts taking on this very eerie green glow. Uh, And Jill couldn't help it. She gets a little scream. When the the first light goes out, she lets out a yip. Yeah. Yeah. she didn't blub. She didn't blub, uh-huh. but she lets out a little little scream. Yeah. When the first light goes out. So I don't know. If Which this is... is a thing that's very common for full-grown adults. Like, if you turn off the light in the bathroom while there's a person in the bathroom, they go, ah! Yeah. I'm here. Turn that back on. Yeah, this is a thing that brought up childhood memories, and I'm not sure if this is a thing that you're super familiar with because you were, uh, you're homeschooled. But it was very much a thing in, in public schooling, at least where I was from. Where, like, if you were in class and, like, for whatever reason there's a power shortage or somebody tripped a breaker and the lights go out. Everybody some screams, anno- some even annoying if girl it's is, the middle of the afternoon yeah. and the sun is out. And like, somebody yes. freaking screams. Yes. And I'm just like, really? Yes. <laughs> okay. I wasn't Why? sure this is a phenomenon you've experienced before. But... <laughs> yes like it's a it's a church phenomenon i've experienced like okay i've also experienced in a pitch black bathroom like at a in a church where like somebody like the power went out or like the light switch got turned off and then people screamed uh-huh. and it's like screaming is is you're not in danger Yes, and also if you're if you're in a danger, dangerous situation where suddenly you find yourself in darkness, screaming, screaming is probably not yeah. the best option, dude. Yeah, it's probably the worst thing to do because then things can find you. Yep. <laughs> so. Yep. Silly. Yep. Um. Anyway, at least we're on the same page here. Yeah. Okay? We're, like we're... I, I might be able to tolerate being in a horror movie with you. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever that happens, we could survive a horror movie together. That's I don't know if we could day. survive, but we could tolerate <laughs> being in one together. For as long as we had. Yep. Um, and Prince Rillian's just like, oh, hey, like, they're all doom and gloom, because Rillian's like, well, whether we live or die, Aslan will be our good lord. And Puddleglum says one of my favorite lines in the entire book, uh, yep. where he says, and you must always remember, there's one good thing about being trapped down here. It'll save funeral expenses. Yep. <laughs> I love that. I mean, like, um, <laughs> that said, though, dying on an adventure anywhere where no one's going to find you will save on funeral expenses, too. But, yeah. like, yes, we're already buried alive is what he's saying. Yeah. Except 
I'm, I don't know why they're so doom and gloom here when this entire journey that they've been underground, like, other than the gnomes, kind of, which were under the witch's control at the time, and the witch, who is now dead, they've encountered nothing remotely hostile. Okay. Like, they're... Chris, they're, tell me, in pitch blackness, underground, not being able to find a way out, yeah. how, how do you think that your no-pack, no-lunch, no-food self would do? Well, not great. I mean, I... Because, like, they're talking about starving to death, not dying because some ogre came out of the woods and ate them. Yeah, I mean, they can... They... they All they have to do is walk uphill. <laughs> and they know that they haven't broken through, yeah. or at least they assume that they haven't broken through yet. So yeah. they're going to get to a wall somewhere here yeah. and have to figure out how to dig around in the dark. Yeah. And what if there's a cave-in in the dark and they bury themselves alive? I, like, I guess that's, that's, I guess it's a fair point. There's a huge number of highly dangerous activities that can happen yeah. in the no bad guy zone. Yeah. And it, it's entirely true. I guess Puddle Glum. I guess you a, just haven't had like a deep-seated fear of being buried alive your whole life. Uh, I have not, no. Yeah, well, some of us have, and this is terrifying. Uh, I guess Puddle Glum left his tinderbox behind at some point. Like they we, can't make a little we fire. We told here. him. We told. We were told that he lost it when they fell down. Oh, that's true. It was very he specifically mentioned yes. that cool. he hasn't had it since they fell down in the hole that they went under me in. Gosh, if only if only Edmund was here with his flashlight. If only like, we could solve all of our problems right here. Um, Except that it still wouldn't give them food. <laughs> that's true. But they can see how to get out. Uh, but never mind. That's that's not a real concern because, uh, hey, look, they see light. Yes. Uh, they don't see daylight. They see a strange blue light. Eventually they do, yes. Um, coming from somewhere. Eustace and Puddleglum first walk with their hands outstretched in front of them until they run into <laughs> a wall. Yeah. Found a dead end. Yeah, it's a... Not right overhead, it's some tunnel off to the side. They see this strange blue light coming through, and they're just like, oh, hey, Jill, want to get in there? Because, you know, you like adventures, and you like tight spaces. Totally. So get in there, crawl through that hole, figure out what it is. And do they say that she needs to, like, get up onto... Yeah. Uh, Pogloma says, says, uh, would you like to get up on my shoulders? Yeah. Cool, and that's where the chapter ends. Yep. Um, Cliffhanger! There might be light. There might be light. At the end of this dark tunnel. Um. Hey, look at that imagery. There is. So is there anything we need to, uh. You, you don't want to talk about the light at the end of the tunnel? Imagery? I mean, that's, that's obvious metaphor. Like, it's, that's a, that's a cliche. So mm. I don't know how much we can talk about cliche. Well, I, it's less about the actual image there and what it means for their whole journey in Underland. Uh-huh. And how that whole Underland journey is part of this kind of, like, baptism metaphor, if you'll forgive the expression, of, like, dying and being raised again. Yeah. As they get really in from the depths. Yeah. And they had the chance to go to hell, and they didn't do do it. I don't know if it's hell, though. Like, I don't, because of the, because of the lack of the, yeah, I don't think it's hell. Yeah. Just, uh, just very fiery underground space. Yeah. 
Um, anyway, so I feel like there's something we missed, but I'd probably not. Um, yeah, we, I don't know. I mean, we do have a character moment with Eustace uh, where Jill looks over to him, expecting him to be kind of scared about this idea of going into the hole as well, but says he looks much more like Rillian. Uh, you know, and his, wants to go his, down to Bism as well. His days of sailing with the king have finally come back to him. Yeah. And so Eustace comes into the space. Finally. We also, though, in the dark, have the moment where Jill doesn't want to speak because she doesn't want to betray her 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 voice to betray her fear. It's smart, apparently. It's very smart of her <laughs> to decide not to, to talk. <laughs> um, but then Eustace talks and his voice betrays his fear. And she's like, yeah, that was the best decision for me to make was to not talk because... <sighs> Look over there, Eustace sounds like a scaredy cat. Yeah. That's a uh, that's a couple chapters now where Jill is, has this moment of like, yep, the best decision for me to make is to sit quiet and still and not do anything. Yeah, that's <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, it is. In fact, the second time at least that that has happened. Yep. You know because her prattling on with the giants was so useful. Yeah. Like, this whole book is a journey of Jill learning when to talk and when not to. <laughs> it's, uh, it's how a young lady grows up. This is her coming of age story, is <laughs> learning when to talk and when to be quiet. <laughs> I mean, this is the lesson I'm taking from this book. I don't yeah. know. When you were a child reading this, what did you take away from Jill's... Uh... I don't think I read Character. this book until I was like 14 or something. Okay. So I don't remember. I don't remember reacting to Jill in a huge, like I remember reacting angrily to Jill not remembering the signs. Yeah. And that's about it. And then also like rereading it now, I'm like, why was I so mad at Jill? There were two other people responsible for this task. Yeah. It was not just Jill's job only exclusively to be secretary of the rules. <laughs> Like, she is not the only one who knew the signs. Uh-huh. So, that, that now annoys me that I was angry at Jill for forgetting signs when everybody else did, too. Oh, man. Yeah. So, the next chapter title is uh, The Disappearance of Jill. Yes. So, based on that, we can probably surmise that she goes through the hole and goes somewhere. Yep, into Wonderland. Into Wonderland. Maybe she's found one of those mysterious portals back to Earth. She crawls through the rabbit hole. Yeah. Maybe she ends up on that island that the Telmarines got banished to. Oh, maybe. Maybe. <sighs> or maybe she ends up with a lamb having a barbecue at the end of the world. <laughs> oh, my, my, my. All right. Are we ready to move on to our next segment? Sure. Why not? What's our next segment? <sighs> uh, so the next one is Narnia Chopped and Screwed. Uh, and in this one, we pick five more sentences out from the chapter because that's our all of our prep for doing this podcast is just uh, finding Read sentences. and find sentences. Uh, and then we use those to tell our own story as a fun creative exercise. And <clears throat> I went ahead and read my summary first. So if you want to read your rewrite first. I can do that. Go for it. All right. Here is my rewrite. Okay. They halted. And in silence, they could hear the lapping of water. Well, however they work, you can't expect them to last forever, you know, replied the Marsh Wiggle. 
Jill knew how wise she'd been not to trust her own. I wouldn't dare go near them. Yes, I know that terrible road. Okay, okay. I did think about the terrible road line. Like, uh, that was one that stood out to me as something I could possibly do something with. Yeah. I also but, wrote uh, down the funeral expenses line. <laughs> yeah, I almost, I almost did that too. one. It's yeah. a, a fun line. Uh, anyway, what's your idea behind your story? Dude? Really, it's just a, a, a atmospheric moment. Like, I okay. just wanted to create that tension because all of the tension in the book, it, or in the chapter at least, is in the last bit Uh uh-huh and it's like once that chasm closes to bism that's when the tension very slowly begins to mount yeah but like i feel like the intensity like peaks when the light goes out and then kind of just falls again yeah and i wanted to like up the intensity of the okay yeah. Of the feel of what was going on. Because yeah. it's it's a lot more... It should have been a lot more intense, I feel. You would think so. Yeah. Um, before I get to my rewrite, uh, I do have another question from the chapter that I kind of want to pose to, to the audience in general. Why do the gnomes have so many fireworks? What? I mean, they spent years being enslaved, digging holes underground, and, like, living, like, you know, mindless zombies. Why do they got fireworks stashed everywhere? I mean, maybe they have, like, blasting caps (laughs) and and stuff that they use for mining. Yeah, but they're launching off rockets that turn into green stars and, like, decorative explosions. It's a good question, because, like, (laughs) their response, like, Glog's response to being freed was, like, what? Well, we all suddenly realized we hadn't had a good laugh or a dance or a song or let off a squib, which is <laughs> let off a firework in a while. Like, and I had to look that up because let off a squib was a really weird phrase. Um, especially because squib is like both an, an old term for a firework and also for a firework that doesn't work. Uh-huh. Like, like a bad one. So it's very confusing because it's like, we haven't let off a squib. I'm like, obviously you mean a good firework that will launch. Yeah. Why did you have them? But also like, why why is the word squib also then eventually come to mean something that doesn't work? Yeah. Like the firework that fails to launch. Yeah. And then know. eventually come into Harry Potter as somebody who doesn't have magical abilities. <laughs> That's a, 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 a magic... A person born of magic users who can't use magic is a squib. Yeah. In Harry Potter. Yeah. I mean, it's like the opposite of that uh, that Katy Perry song. It's Baby, You're a Firework. No. No, um, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. Next great D&D character idea is a gnome artificer who only makes fireworks. <laughs> Oh. oh man okay so yeah i don't know i don't know why they have fireworks that's a great question but would you like to read your rewrite yeah. now sir I'll go, I'll go ahead and do mine here's my rewrite what kind of beast is your salamander asked the prince what's so dreadful about it it was about a thousand feet long and perhaps 200 wide then with a sound like a thousand goods trains crashing into a thousand pairs of buffers. The lips of rock closed. Then they were in absolute darkness. So. 
Okay. Okay. Uh, it's about them getting eaten by a giant rock monster. Yeah. So there you go. I got it. <laughs> there you go. They just got eaten. <laughs> I like it. Thought it was fun. No, I like it. I like it. <laughs> cool. Especially because like this image of Bism is both like the description of it is so lush and verdant and beautiful and glorious with like these growing live gems and minerals. Uh-huh. But also what they see of it is fire. And they hear a description of a fire living monster that lives in a river of fire. Uh-huh. Like, and it's very terrifying imagery of what, like, they're physically seeing a deep pit with some pretty colors in it and a fire river. <laughs> yeah. And they are told there's a fire monster that lives in the fire river and talks to them. <laughs> Excuse me, what? And then they're told, oh, it's lush and beautiful and, and like, there's... Yeah, it's actually not that bad. Yeah, it's not that bad. Like, come on. Like, this is a terrifying place. Yeah. So we both picked out some spooky imagery from it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, shall we move on to our last segment now? Absolutely. Let's do the thing. Okay. What do I do in my last segment, Kristen? The last segment is Baseless Speculation and you, my wonderful co-host... Have not read these books before. This book specifically, you have had no spoilers for. Yes. And we are 14 chapters into this 16 chapter book, and you haven't had any spoilers for the end of it, but it's getting a little hard to baselessly speculate about what's happening, so you have to make some stuff up. But what you do in this segment is you baselessly speculate with your lack of knowledge and your reading of the book thus far to kind of speculate about what's going to happen baselessly. Do it. Okay. Um... So this one we're going to go a little off the rails with. Um, So in previous weeks, we've talked a little bit about how I think other media has possibly been inspired by this book. Yes. Uh, Specifically, uh, Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. Uh, I didn't do it. I really appreciate the revisit on that. Thank you. (laughs) I just, I really want to hammer home that I came up with this theory, just in case anybody writes a term paper on this. Yeah. Uh, Copyright Chris Pear, 2021. Um, (laughs) Also, I didn't mention it in Baseless Speculation, but I also brought up how uh, I think maybe part of the imagery from uh, Starless Sea came from this book a little bit as well. Yeah. So I want to flip the script this week a little bit and talk about um, how Lewis might have been inspired himself by something else. Mm-hmm. And I came up with two different ways of looking at this uh, as I was originally trying to come up with a stupid argument and then actually came up with one that it makes a lot of sense. I stumbled into uh, to something that might be good accidentally. So I'm going to go with the one that makes a little bit of sense first. Uh, and then I'll just go into my crazy nonsense ramblings. So my one that makes a lot of sense is that we know that Lewis wrote these books. And there's a lot of imagery in these books that specifically pertains to kind of World War II culture in Britain and post-war culture. And so, like, that that's a lot of, like, the background from where the Pevensies are coming from is, like, this, you know, right after wartime and, like, the London Blitz and, like, this whole, uh, this trauma that they've experienced. Yes. And so that led me to thinking that we could look at the entire plot of this book as a war metaphor. Yes. And, and hear me out here. Uh, so we have the two children that come into the world of uh, Jill and Eustace. And I think here, 
Jill and Eustace uh, very clearly symbolize England going into World War II. And there's two different sides of England here. There is Eustace, who is the one who's been here before. He, he is the veteran of the First World War. He's the England that had been through one war already and was weary from it and is going back. And then we have Jill, who is the timid one who hasn't been here, who hasn't experienced this, and is, uh, you know, afraid of this adventure, is, uh, you know, has a lot of trepidation and is scared of what this might mean. What you're doing right now is literary analysis. This is not based on speculation. Well, it, well yeah, okay, that's, that's why I said I'm doing the. That's why I said I'm doing the the, the boring one first. Um, I mean, they said the second one is also literary analysis, but I can't. There's so little to speculate about anymore. Uh, I have I have a little tagline at the end for actual baseless speculation, but whatever. Um, so there are the two sides of England that are going into this war, and then we meet other characters uh, as we go into it. We meet Puddleglum, who is a who is a Marshwickle, who is described as like this very frog-like character who has this strange pattern of speech that kind of lives right outside the borders of Narnia. Puddleglum is France, <laughs> and like this uh, almost tongue-in-cheek thing of like, hey, the French are frogs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like they, you know, they have this strange culture. They live right next door, you know. So it's England. It's... They smoke mud. <laughs> Yeah, well, the French, it's a very French stereotype that they're always smoking. Like, it's this, I don't know. Okay. Puddle Glum is France that uh, England has found an ally in in this fight against uh, Germany, who at this time is, you know, this rising power way off to the east that they aren't necessarily directly interacting with, but is becoming a threat. Mm -hmm. And then they get more into the conflict. They go north they go uh deeper into the war germany is becoming closer both very uh literally and you know metaphorically in the story where they're getting closer to the witch lady of the green kirtle this is germany here mm -hmm. and this is the part that i start going into like stuff that the the world war ii historians will just be super pissed at me about because i'm just talking about stuff that i uh you know haven't actually studied but anyway <laughs> If you're a World War II buff, and, and what I'm saying makes absolutely no sense, which I know it does, uh, please email us. We'll provide the contact details at the end of the episode. But anyway, they get closer to uh, this this power of Germany, which is becoming a more and more of a looming threat. And the European allies are aware and becoming more aware that they cannot win this war by themselves. And what do they need to actually win what's going to turn the tide we need the industrial powerhouse of america who at the time of world war ii is referred to is referred to in a lot of literature as a sleeping giant uh because if we know if america enters this fight then the tables could turn very quickly and so who was america america is really in this very much this sleeping giant is underground trapped in this suit of armor that they have to go break him out, wake him up, free him, bring him to the fight, and as soon as he is brought into the fight, the tables turn, they're able to cut the head off of the witch, Germany. Free Poland. Yeah, Germany. Yeah, free Poland. 
and free, you know, this subjugated people that she's had under her thumb. And I don't think that's necessarily just Poland or like countries that Germany annexed. Like we're also talking about this mixed rate, you know, these mixed races of people that could in fact be the Axis powers. Like this could be Japan, this could be Italy, who fell under like this Nazi regime. And uh, they are able to free them and return them back to their home and their way of life. Uh, and so the whole thing. But where's, where's America wanting to go? Where's Rillian wanting to go? He just wants to go home. No, because he, he's tempted. He's yeah. very tempted to go <laughs> back to Bism. Because tempted to go to Japan. I don't know. That's where the metaphor breaks down. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that's what I thought. Could, there could actually be something there. Okay. Um, yeah, absolutely. Cool. It's a good metaphor. It's a good. Uh, and then I have my silly one that I want to get into. Um, so here's the one I actually started trying to put together and, and then stumbled into this war metaphor. All right. So what I originally started out with, um, and this really kind of kind of stuck in my mind when I read this chapter specifically, uh, and with the descriptions of like the gnomes and their culture and bism and whatnot. I think the silver chair could be a direct response to L. Frank Baum's Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Now hear me out. You always laugh and say, "Now hear me out," as if I gave you some skeptical look. Like what? Because it, it adds to the theater of the radio. Okay. <laughs> I'm I'm acknowledging the fact that this argument is stupid. Um. So this could be a direct response to the Wizard of Oz. Now, if you know anything about the Wizard of Oz, I don't know if you've read the book. I'm not aware. I've never um, heard of it. But but <laughs> but less so in the movie, but much more so in the book there is this long-running theory that it is, in fact, not a children's novel, and it is commentary on the American economics in, you know, the transition between the 19th and 20th centuries. And this idea that was being fought out by the Republicans and Democrats at the time as to whether to keep America on the gold standard or go to silver-backed currency. Okay. And there's this whole very elaborate, very well thought out argument that has convinced me that this is, you know, what the book is alluding to is it's poking fun at, you know, the Democrats at the time who want to go into the silver standard basically so that the banks can print more money and solve the problem of America not having enough cash. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and all the characters in the book are supposed to be representative of groups of people so we have, uh, I believe, like the the scarecrow is the American farmer. The Tin Man is uh, an industry. Uh, the Cowardly Lion is supposed to be, um, I forget what his name is, but like the the leader of the Democratic Party at the time, who's ex you know pushing for this silver standard. Uh, in the book, originally, instead of ruby slippers, Dorothy has silver slippers, and she's traversing down the gold brick road, like mm -hmm. it's a whole thing. Okay. Um, so I think we can turn around and say the silver chair could be a response to this. And we have, if we look at it hard enough, a very similar cast of characters. So we have Jill, who is, you know, this young, naive girl who wants something better out of her life that gets transported into this fantastical land, mm -hmm. uh, along with, uh, several other characters here. And who does she, she has three traveling companions. She has... 
Eustace, who throughout this book is basically trying to find courage again and to find who who he was and who he found himself to be the first time he was in Narnia. So maybe he could be the Cowardly Lion. We have Puddleglum, who's this very tall, like, strange-speaking, almost scarecrow-like mm-hmm. creature. Yeah. Who says a lot, doesn't necessarily come up with a lot of ideas by himself. So you could establish maybe, oh, hey, he's the one who doesn't have a brain. And then we have the very... Rude. <laughs> then we have the very obvious metaphor of the Tin Man, Rillian, who is trapped inside this suit of armor, who can't speak. And he's enchanted and needs to find his heart again and needs to find a reason to care. And so we establish a connection by having these traveling companions. And, the, and they get to the Emerald City. They get to the Emerald City underground. And now they, they follow the giant brick road up here to go, sure. under, to go underground to get to, you know, this imitation of the Emerald City. And what do they have to do once they get there? They have to free the Tin Man... By breaking the silver chair. And I think this here is Lewis saying, yeah, I agree with the point that L. Frank Baum is trying to make. Like, the whole, uh, you know, not just the post-war economy, but the return to, like, the opulence and uh, industrial and economic success of America post-World War II uh, is, like, a direct result of them abandoning this idea of going to the silver standard and we break the silver chair we break this whole plan uh and we have to you know get back to uh this old way of doing things and in this in the metaphor the americans are the gnomes and so they're bound by this magic of the silver chair and they go and they get freed and go back to their land where it's flowing with jewels and gold and real wealth Mm mm-hmm uh, and there you go. Yeah, I'm it's not fine. mad at it. Like, I'm, I'm not mad at it. Uh, so those are my two silly arguments about what this book is actually about. No, I really like it though. Like that, that one was that one was really good. Like this is the level of literary analysis that I want to get into and wanted to from the very beginning. And I feel like you fought me on every time. But then when you get to the point where you're like, all right, my base of speculation is starting to get a little dry. I'm going to now do literary analysis. And I'm a little annoyed that that this is something that you're like, no, I'm not going to do this with you. I'm going to do this in my segment. She's a little bit annoyed. Uh-huh. Uh, now, I definitely think my first argument holds more weight because I really don't think Lewis would care that much about, like, post-war American economics. <laughs> that wouldn't uh, be a thing he'd write a children's book about, but... I don't know. <laughs> um, who knows? Uh, as to actual baseless speculation for the story, I kind of already shared the only idea that I have is that, oh, hey, they see this strange blue light in the tunnel that's not daylight. I think it's a portal to somewhere else. Okay. And that's what the disappearance of Jill is all about. Maybe she finds a portal to, you know, if not Earth, then somewhere. Uh, and she doesn't actually get to the surface, but... But Puddle Glum and Rillian probably do. Yeah. Like, she and... She and Eustace just crawl out of this hole and end up back at yep. Experiment House and have no idea. Yep. And then we what have no happened. idea what happens. Yeah, I don't like that. Yeah, it does. Anyway, so I've rambled on for too long. That's what I got. All right. Thank you so much for joining us 
today, listeners, as we discussed chapter 14 of The Silver Chair. Join us next week as we discuss chapter 15, The Disappearance of Jill. And if you want to communicate with us in the meantime, you can do so at Chronically Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, at Chronically Pod on Twitter, or you can email us your fan art of bism at chronicallypodcast at gmail.com. I don't know if we have any listeners, listeners that are that talented. <laughs> and Seth, that's a lot to paint. Until next time, if a salamander ever tells you to jump off a cliff, you should probably listen to him. And if you ever find yourself in a situation where you're afraid, it's better not to say anything at all. Yeah, absolutely. Bye. Uh, so the next one is Narnia. Narnia! Hashtag. Narnia chopped and screwed. Or maybe she ends up with a lamb having a barbecue at the end of the <laughs> world. And I know not how, as the... Oh God, I can't read my own writing today. Yeah. And they are told there's a fire monster that lives in the fire river and talks to them. Excuse me, what? What even are snakes? Um, <laughs> because some ogre came out of the woods and ate them. Yeah, I mean, they can... Or, for some reason, they could be... Or for some reason... Did I, did I write that wrong? Or for some other Well, thank you so much for joining us today, guests and or guests. Thank you, thank you, audience, so much. Yes. And we are thirteen chapters into the sixteen chapter book. This is chapter fourteen. I wrote down the next chapter's number wrong. (laughs) We're fifteen chapters into this. Fourteen chapters in. (laughs) We're. Say the number 14. 14, 14, 14, 14, 14. And we are 14 chapters into the 16-chapter book. Also, I I think we should start a, you know, at some point we are leading to start a merch shop. um, And I think our first piece of merch should be just a button that says, let off a squib. (laughs) 